Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. My name is Tom Dick. I'm one of the pastors here. This is uh, my third week in a row of preaching. And uh, next week, Pastor Ray is here. And then we, uh, man, everything starts again. And how many of you parents are like, yep, they're going back. And you feel like this little, you, you feel guilty because you know you shouldn't, but secretly you're just, you're actually flying on a high and you're like, I can make it now because we're close to the end. Yeah, I understand. And next week also we go back to four services. So we add the six o'clock on, on Saturday and we also add back children's ministry. And that's awesome. And I know that our kids, volunteers are really looking forward to seeing your children again as well. Now, if you're new here today, we're going to start the service, the message a little bit differently. Remember, there's kids in here, okay? So we got to, got to work with them, okay? And you parents can, can pretend you don't really like this part, but I know you secretly do, okay? And uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to do a couple tricks. I did a little magic show at, at camp, and I decided I was going to do a few tricks for you, but they're not magic tricks because you can't do that in church. Um, they're just stuff you can learn on the internet. Um, but in order to do this, I'm going to need help from a person, uh, and I'm going to do three, three uh, not magic tricks, and I need help from a person for two of them, and I'll just get them up on stage already. So, oh, I can't take a kid because you're broke, okay? I need somebody with 20 bucks, $20, cash, okay? And it needs to be the person who actually has it, like owns it, okay? Anybody? Yes, you? Is that Luke? All right, come up on stage. Give a hand to Luke. Oh, you got to get the 20 from your wife first. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> okay, you just stand right there and look pretty for a minute, okay, Luke? All right. So the first trick I'm going to do is one of the most famous tricks all around the world. How many of you have ever heard of the cup and, cup and balls trick? Have you heard of it? Anybody? Wow. How many of you know how to do it? Stupid YouTube. <laughs> Ruins everything. Anyways, I don't do uh, the cup and balls trick because... Uh, they're too small. I do uh, cup and ducks. I got little rubber ducks, and I'll try and make sure that you can see fairly well. But I have these, uh, I have three cups here, okay? They're solid on the bottom. Look at that. They're solid. Are they not solid? Yeah. And uh, uh, so what we do is uh, we put one duck here, okay? Now pay attention because it goes quite fast, okay? Now this has nothing to do with my message. This is just to warm you up, okay? This trick is just for pure entertainment, Okay? The next ones may have something. Well, not really. Okay, here we go. And it goes right through, okay? Every time. It's pretty amazing, okay? So you put a duck there, you cover it up, you click it, and it goes right through. Isn't that astonishing? Now, the really interesting thing is, if you only cover it with one cup, it doesn't fall through. It goes over here. Okay, so we're going to do it one more time. Just really super fast, okay? All right, so we put the duck on top. Click, click, down it goes. All right, we put the next one. There we go. And then the next one, you know what? We're going to do it a little tricky this time. We're going to put it on top. Click. There we go. Three. Amazing. I do not do magic tricks. Uh, I do not do uh, parties anymore because I'm cool now and I don't have to. Also, I make money and I don't have to. So when I was a teenager and I wasn't cool and had no money, I did actually do magic shows. Okay. Luke, this is just a regular ribbon. 
Uh, I have it tied on one side, but mostly it's normal. And uh, this trick is an amazing trick because my grandpa taught it to me. Now, my grandpa is dead. He would have been 100 this year. And uh, he was awesome. You know, I don't, I don't remember this as a child, but when I was a teenager, all of a sudden he pulled out these tricks that he knew. And they were incredible. I'm like, Grandpa, like, you just got cool. Anyways, <laughs> take these safety scissors, and, uh, <laughs> and I'd like you to cut that in half. Okay, now I have two strings here, okay? Now, normally I'd have a race with you. You could tie that end, and I'll tie this end. But, but today I'm just going to do it myself. And I'm going to put these two, this end, into my mouth. And, and kids, what do I do? I tie it with my mouth, correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. And watch this. Put it back together. <laughs> Guys, that's amazing. Why aren't you clapping? <laughs> Luke likes it. I know. That's why I chose you. <laughs> All right. Luke, $20. You got it? Okay, great. Uh, Yesterday, I had someone put a mark on a $20 bill, which is illegal, and Staff Sergeant Leninga was sitting right there. So they got arrested after the service, and I decided not to do that to you. Here, so just put this little sticky on anywhere you want. And then I'm going to get you to sign the sticky. This is not illegal. We can peel the sticky off. Don't worry. Okay? Luke's kids, he's coming home today. Okay, awesome. Now I'm going to get you to put that in this offering envelope where it should have been in the first place. Anyways, uh, and I'm going to just fold it up. Now, Luke, pay attention, okay? Okay, I'm folding it up. Now I'm going to unfold that envelope. We're going to open up the $20. Now, I have a question for you. In front of all these witnesses, is this the $20 you gave me? Yes. Thank you. All right, you can have a seat. (laughs) Now, It's not a magic trick. That's a scam. (laughs) But who cares, right? Okay, kids, that's a good one to pull out at the next family gathering, okay? But here's a little bonus tip for you. Always pick your crazy old uncle to do that trick on, okay? And this is why. He'll forget. You can do it over and over and over again. Just keep scamming about 20 bucks every time. All right. Anyways. Now, whenever I do tricks like that for kids, especially kids, or young adults, they're, they're also quite bad at this. There's always that one kid who yells out. What does he yell out? I know how you did that. Always. Every time. And that is the, the reason I don't do birthday parties anymore, because of that one snotty kid. So annoying for somebody who's trying to do something cool for them to ruin it by saying they know how they did it. First of all, they're liars. They usually don't. But the second thing they also say usually is this. Uh, At some point, you're going to get a kid who has like this real moral compass in them, you know, real sense of justice. And he'll say, you lied to us. I'll say, of course I lied to you. It's a trick. It's what tricks are. They're stories that make you believe one thing and then I actually do another thing. And every so often you'll get a kid who actually is offended that you won't tell them how to do a trick and that they were actually fooled. Every so often. Now, question for you kids. 
Is it fair the way I just took that $20 from Mr. Luke? Yeah? Who says yes? Mm -hmm. Yeah? Your kids, I see you're throwing you under the bus. No, I'm just kidding. I can't see that far. How many of you think, no, it wasn't fair? Yeah. I want you to feel that feeling of injustice for a minute. A feeling that things just aren't fair. You know, that is a very common theme for kids, but it's not just for kids. That feeling of, I've just been played. Life is not good. Others have it better. That is common to all of humanity. We have a very acute sense of justice, and I can prove it by doing this. This is the way that people confess the injustice of the world today. What's the magic word to get what you want, Billy? I'm offended. You say, I'm offended anywhere, and you get what you want. Because it is practically illegal to offend somebody these days. And the reason it's so easy to offend people these days is because people have a false sense of justice. A lot of the time, it's wrong. Now, there's all sorts of reasons for this. Some of them are legitimate. Some of them are illegitimate reasons. There might be maturity or immaturity. There might be poor logic. Maybe a person was abused as a child. And now they have a, an increased sense of justice of what should be right in the world. Maybe it's the spirit of the age. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's stupidity. But there's one reason, I think, that everybody in the world who's ever been born has this sense of injustice built into them, and it's because it's our human nature. And the sense of justice is good, except that it's been twisted, it's been skewed by sin. And so that we really don't know what justice should look like. And you know what? The church isn't immune to this. The church isn't immune to this sense of injustice, this sense of fairness, and it's always been that way. And I know that because Jesus talked about it. And if it was happening in Jesus' day, and you're going to find out it happened a lot earlier than that, then I know that it's still happening today because this book is still relevant to us today. And it, it comes to us in a story called the parable of the vineyard. In the parable of the vineyard. Actually, it's the parable of the vineyard workers. And so let's put some workers up there. Now, this is how it starts. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire some workers for his vineyard. And what did he do? He saw a bunch of guys there and he said, okay, I'm going to pay you one denarius. That was a fair wage and you can come and work for me for the day. Everybody agreed on the terms and they came and they went to work. Now, halfway through the day, some, in the midday, some more people were at the edge of the vineyard and the, and the landowner went to them and he said, look, would you like to also work for me? And they said, yes, we would. So he says, come and join us in the vineyard. You can work for me too. Then at the end of the day, in the last hour, some more people came and they said, and he went to them and the landowner said, would you like to work for me as well? And they said, yes. So now for the last hour of the day, they worked. And then in the evening, when came time to collect their wages, they went to the landowner and the guys who'd been there all day, they lined up first and they got the denarius they had agreed on. But then the midday workers, they, they also got a denarius. And the last hour workers also got a denarius. And they were offended at this. They were seriously offended. Especially the ones who'd been working there all day. They said, it's not fair that you pay the one who's been here since the morning, the same as the one who only came for one hour. And this is what he said. He replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Don't you agree? Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my business? Are you jealous? Because I'm generous. 
So the first will be last, and the last will be first. So, they were offended. And you know what? We get offended. Our sense of justice is offended when we see certain people walk through these doors. What are they doing here? Why is he here with her? Didn't I just get sort of taken advantage of him last week in, in business? And we look at them and we judge them in our heart in a way that is unbiblical. You won't find it in Scripture. We have this sense of who is in and who should be out. And we get offended in our hearts when it doesn't play out the way it should. Now, I'm going to share with you a few more stories today about last hour workers. People who shouldn't have been in, who got in. And these stories are from the Jewish scriptures from the Old Testament. I'm going to tell you two stories about three women. Three women warriors. And, and part, of the, part of the punchline is that they were women. Because the, the, the cultural ethos or environment of the Old Testament was incredibly male-centered. Incredibly male-centered. In a way that we can't even fathom today. Even with the injustices that still exist. So the fact that we have these stories written about women is incredibly important. It should alert us to the fact that God is making a strong statement to the culture of that day, and maybe if we can understand it in our terms, he'll make a strong statement to us as well. The first story I want to tell you is the story of the conquest of Jericho. Now, you know this story. It's a wonderful story. The nation of Israel had wandered through the desert for 40 extra years. They had been to the Jordan River once before. They had gone in, chickened out, and God said, because of the, uh, the unfaithfulness, the disbelief of your fathers, you had to wander through the desert again until they were all gone. In fact, even Moses died. Only two people from that older generation were even alive now. That was Joshua, who was leading, and his uh, cohort, Caleb. And here again, they come after all these years with fresh young faces along to the Jordan River, and they're looking into the promised land again. And Joshua, who's an old man at this time, he's, he's, uh, he's pretty wise. He says, I know that the Lord has given this land to us, but we're going to go and we're going to scout it out first so we can take it as strategically as possible. And he sends two spies. Well, he sends a bunch of spies, but two of them in particular go to the fortified city of Jericho, which was the first on their hit list. And they went into the town, and they started checking everything out. And soon enough, word got out that there were some guys here who shouldn't be here, and the guards of the town started going around looking for them, and they ended up at a, at a house. Now, it was the house that there would have been lots of traffic to. It was an innkeeper's house, but her name was Rahab, and she was probably a, probably a woman of ill repute. She was a sinner. She allowed men into her home that she shouldn't have. And uh, the guards knew this, and so they went to this innkeeper, and they said, Rahab, have you seen these men? And she said, well, yes, they were here, but they are now gone. And uh, she says, but maybe if you hurry right now, if you go out the city gates, you'll still find them in time. And they leave, and she's like, Psst, you guys can come down. <laughs> they were hiding in the, in the thatch on her roof. 
And so these guys come down and they say, okay, how are we going to get out now? The, the guard, thank you for saving us, Rahab, but how are we going to leave? And she said, don't worry. My house is in the wall of Jericho. It was right into the wall. She says, I'll lower you out with a, with a rope. But she says, but wait a second before you go. I want a promise from you because your reputation has gone before you and the reputation of your God has certainly gone before you. We heard what you did to Pharaoh and his army. We heard the miracles that happened. We heard how you conquered the Amalekites. We heard all these things and we are terrified. If I help you, can you ensure that my life will be spared? And the men looked at each other and they said, yes, we can. On the day that you see us coming to conquer Jericho, put out the scarlet rope that you lower us down on. But make sure it's there. And if it's there, Yahweh, our God, will preserve you and your family, whoever is gathered in your home. But if they're not in your home, they won't be preserved. And if that rope isn't there, you won't be preserved. And if you rat us out, we can be freed from the oath that we're making. She said, yes, absolutely. She says, now as you escape, go into the hill country for three days and then you can return. So they did. And you know that the nation of Israel then crossed the Jordan River, miraculously stopping up the water, walking through, setting up a pile of memorial stones to remember what God had done there. And then they came to this formidable city of Jericho. And they weren't going to take Jericho, but God was going to take Jericho. And he gave them a rather unorthodox um, battle plan. He said, march around it. That's all you've got to do. And as they were marching around, all the little silly French peas hurled insults at them. Silly Picard, what are you doing here? little veggie tails throwback. <laughs> and they kept walking around, and on the seventh day, seven days they did that, on the seventh day they walked seven times. And they did it in silence, and upon the seventh time at the end of the, of the march, the, the priests blew the shofar, which is a, a ram's horn. And all the nation of Israel shouted, and the walls came tumbling down. <sighs> Except for one section of the wall, Rahab's section. And Rahab and her entire family was spared. The, the nation of Israel, they, they surged over the, over the rubble of the wall. They set fire to the city. They, they, took, uh, they, they presented everything to the Lord, anything that was like valuable metal, they put to the, to the Lord's treasury in the tabernacle. Everything else was destroyed. Every man, woman, and child was put to the sword. All the animals were put to the sword. The cats went first. Somebody told me last service that I could have offended somebody by saying that. So, I'm just kidding. I don't know if the cats went first. <laughs> I like cats. And Rahab was spared with her family. And this is the most remarkable part, though. It comes after the story. This is what Joshua says. So Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies that Joshua sent to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. She lives among the Israelites to this day. Now, she's dead now, just so you know. <laughs> but at the time of the writing of this story, the recording of it, she was alive. She was part of the nation of Israel, this pagan woman who was unbelievably sinful was part of a God's chosen people. It didn't matter what her vocation was. It didn't matter what her ethnicity was. God accepted her. And in fact, we know that she married a man named Salmon. 
Salmon, who was the father of Boaz, by the way, Boaz is the one who married Ruth, remember? And Ruth was a, a Moabitess. She was, she was also um, a widow, and she was also a foreigner. And I'm willing to put money on this, and we'll pay in, in heaven. <laughs> I'm going to ask Boaz this. I'll bet you anything that the reason that he received and loved Ruth the way he did was because he remembered what had happened to his mother. He had a heart for that foreigner. And so Boaz married Ruth, and they had a child named Obed, and Obed had a son named Jesse, and Jesse had a son named David who became the king. And all of these people are in the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus has a prostitute in his family tree. Think about that. And I'll bet you any money that we're doing a lot of betting today. I apologize. I will not actually bet you any money. Well, 20 bucks maybe. <laughs> not mine. I just wonder if there weren't Israelites who looked around about a week after the fall of Jericho and said, wait a second, she's from that city, isn't she? What is she doing with us? And when Salmon started dating her, I bet you he had some great aunt who did not approve <laughs> dating that Rahab girl, Jericho. But God received her into his family. She's even mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews. And then we go to another story with two famous women in it. An amazing story. It's the story of Deborah. Deborah lived about 170 years after Rahab, about 170 years after the conquest of the nation of Israel. They were getting it right some years and getting it wrong other years. They had gone through four judges already. Those judges were the leaders of the people before they had a king to call their own, to rule them. And Deborah was called a prophetess. She was a prophet. And, and you know from reading the scriptures that there weren't very many women who were prophets, and yet she was. And not only was she a prophetess, she was a judge, and she was the only female judge that ever led in, in uh, Israel that we know of, that was recorded in the Bible. And, you know, she would, she would sit under, they said, the palms of, of Deborah, and the people would come to her, and she would help them settle their disputes. And I, I think, I don't know how old she was at the time. She had a husband. We know that she was married. But she would sit there and she would help people to resolve their, their problems. She would pray, she'd hear God's voice, and she would speak for him on earth. I have this kind of this picture that she was this old grandmotherly lady. She, she was called, she's called the mother of Israel in the Bible. The mother of Israel. What a beautiful phrase. She, I actually have a, I have a, a woman in mind as I think about her. Um, my grandma's cousin, her name was Mrs. Isaac. She, she was this kind of a woman. You know, if you ever met her, the sweetest thing you've ever, you've ever met. Just lovely. But I, I heard that she used to have a shotgun, a 12-gauge, between her sewing machine so she could shoot the crows and the squirrels from her bird feeder <laughs> through the window. And when I heard that, I went, Aunt Irene? Really? Wow. And my respect for her grew. <laughs> that is who I imagine Deborah is. Sewing with a spear, you know? The nation of Israel was disobeying the Lord after the death of their last judge. So the Bible tells us that the Lord sold Israel to a man named Jabin of Hazor. He was an incredibly wicked and powerful Canaanite king. 
And for 20 years, this Canaanite king had his way with the nation of Israel. He would go in, he would raid them, he would kill them, he would steal their flocks, take their kids as slaves. He would do all manner of horrible things, and he was virtually unstoppable because he had an army of 900 iron chariots. And whoever had iron in that time won because iron was stronger than anything else, and it was certainly stronger than anything the Israelites had at that time. The Israelites were fighting with bronze and and copper, and they had short-range arrows and slingshots and and leather and wooden shields. They were very ill-equipped to defend themselves against this man and his commander, whose name was Sisera. And so one day the Lord speaks to Deborah, and he says, call Barak up here. And so she calls a man named Barak, and she says, Barak, the Lord has said he has heard the cries of his people, and he's going to now defeat Hazor, the king of Hazor. And so I want you to gather 10,000 people together, and we're going to go to battle against him. And Barak said, okay, I'll gather the people, but I don't want to be the one who leads them. I'm too afraid. Would you please, Mother Deborah, lead us? And Deborah goes, well, I will. But you've got to be okay with the fact that a woman is going to get glory for the victory. And Barak's like, you know what? I can live with that. I just don't want to die. (laughs) He said, yes. And so he gathered the people and she led them into battle and they seriously routed those chariots and Sisera and the army. It says that the Lord threw them into a confusion. It was the Lord's battle. It was the Lord's victory. And as they scattered across the countryside and the Israelites started to chase down these remnants of the Canaanite army, Sisera, the commander, escaped. And he was running through the wilderness until he recognized a tent. It was the tent of a man named Heber. Heber the Kenite. Now the Kenites were descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And they had kind of moved along with the Israelites. They were not Israelites, but they were sort of welcome to the Israelites. They were okay. They weren't like the Amalekites who had attacked in the wilderness. But Heber was a friend of King Jabin. And so as Sisera ran up, he thought, okay, I'm going to be safe if I go into that tent and hide out for a little bit. And exhausted, he went. And there was not Heber, but Jael, Heber's wife. Now, I don't know how old Jael was at the time, I imagine. I, I, I just have imagined that she was, you know, a young wife. Maybe she wasn't, doesn't matter. I imagine she was diminutive in stature. And I don't know whether she was trembling when she received this man, this convict, into her home, but she said, yes, come in and rest. And he said, if anybody comes to the door, just tell them. And they ask for a man, just tell them I'm not here. And she said, I can do that. And then she gave him some warm milk to drink, and it put him into a deep sleep. And then Jael the Kenite, who was not an Israelite, took a tent peg and a carpenter's mallet and dispatched Sisera, the evil general. She killed him. She was an assassin. And that entire battle was won at the hands of women. Woo! (laughs) Incredible. And I wonder if later on, when they were writing down those stories, somebody, some guy nudged his other buddy, said, Let's, let's change it to a man. <laughs> this is embarrassing for us that a woman would have led us into battle and won. God didn't care. God said, I'll use whoever's available. Thank you very much. I'll use people of both genders. 
of any nationality and of any background. And Deborah immortalized the name Jael in a beautiful poem, a worship song that she wrote afterwards. These were celebrated women. You see, the nation of Israel was God's chosen nation, and it remains God's chosen nation today, but God isn't exclusive in his plans. Did you know that when the Israelites entered the promised land, most of the people there, there were a few groups of people that were incredibly wicked that were being punished, so they were wiped out, but most of the people groups in the cities in the promised land were given three options. They said, you can leave, you can join us, become an Israelite, or we're going to fight you and we will win. But they weren't all just destroyed. They were given grace and mercy if they had chosen it. And actually, we know that some people did choose to become Israelites, and God adopted them into his family. In fact, when the nation of Israel was leaving Egypt, their oppressors in the Exodus, if you read carefully, you see just as they leave, it says a rabble of Egyptian neighbors joined them. The people who had oppressed them, their Egyptian neighbors, actually joined the nation of Israel in their exodus away from Pharaoh. Now, I have a question for you. Did you, have you, did you ever hear or have you, do you ever read about the nation of these Egyptians after? You never read about these Egyptians. You know why? Because they're Israelites then. Because they're adopted in. They're no longer outsiders and foreigners. And by the way, this kind of thing, it, it continues into the New Testament. There's a beautiful story. I love it. It's in John 4. About a woman who goes and draws water at a well. And John 4 tells us that Jesus was passing through. He was on his way back to Judea. And he was passing through, and it says, worn out from his journey. It was about 6 o'clock in the afternoon. He sat down, and his disciples went ahead of him to a Samaritan village named Sychar to buy some food. And Jesus here sitting at a well, the well that Jacob gave his son Joseph, He's sitting there, and a woman comes out to draw water. And now she's a Samaritan woman. And who were the Samaritans? The Samaritans were half-breeds. They were a mixed race. And they were very, very... Uh, they suffered a lot of racism because of who they were. When the, when the nation of Israel... The, the, the 12 tribes were eventually separated into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of, of Israel was very, very wicked, and they were carried off into exile by the Assyrians. But when the Assyrians took them away, they left a remnant behind in Israel, in northern, the northern kingdom. And that remnant intermarried with Assyrians, and they became the Samaritans. And so they weren't Gentiles, but they weren't Jews. They, they didn't fit anymore, and they weren't welcome in Jerusalem at, in the Jewish temple. So they built their own temple. And they had their own Torah. They had their own first five books of the Bible. It was a little bit different, a little bit off. It was a little skewed. And they were really, really frowned upon by the Jews. In fact, if you wanted to insult a Jew, you'd call him a Samaritan. So it was derogatory. And here was this woman, a Samaritan woman, coming out at an odd time of the day. It's, it's late in the afternoon. It's hot. Most of the women have already come from the village of Sychar. They, they come in the cool of the morning because it's a desert. And they gather water then because it's hard work. And, and, and these women, they move in packs, just like they do today, to the washroom. They just go all together. Except for one. And why was she alone? Jesus is sitting there, 
Samaritan woman comes. He says, can you give me a drink? She goes, sir, how is that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And then Jesus says, woman, if you knew the one who is talking to you, you would ask him and he would give you a drink of living water. And she said, sir, how will you get this water? The well is very deep and you have no bucket. Are you greater than our father, uh, Jacob, who gave this well to us? And he said, the water that I give you, when you drink it, it will well up within you for eternal life. And she said, sir, where do I get this water? He said, you know what? I'll give you some of this water, but why don't you go call your husband first? Ah, that's why she was alone. She said, I don't have a husband, which was true. In fact, Jesus said, you've spoken correctly that you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the man you are with right now is not your husband. You're just living with him. And then she realized she's not dealing with an ordinary traveler. And she said, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. And then they have a discussion about where they should worship, whether it should be on the mountain where the Samaritans worshiped or in Jerusalem. And then she says this remarkable thing. She says, you know, we know that there is one, that the Christ is coming, who is called the Messiah. And when he comes, he will explain all these things to us. And then Jesus says, I am he, the one speaking to you. And right then the disciples come back. And they are astonished. It says the disciples returned and they were astonished to see him speaking with a woman. But no one said, why are you talking with her and what are you doing? And then the woman says she left her water jar there and she ran into town to tell the people of the village. She said, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? The men of the village, the women of the village come out. And this is what we read. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because of what the woman said. He told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed there for two more days, long enough for many more to hear the messages and believe. And they said to the woman, we, we, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him for ourselves. Now we know that he indeed is the savior of the world. And this entire village of Gentile Samaritans was saved on that day. And do you know what I love about it? Jesus was breaking his own rules by doing it. Jesus was breaking his own rule. We know that because in another place, a Gentile woman comes to him. And actually, she's not just coming to him, she's nagging him. She has a daughter who's sick at home, and she's heard there's a healer in town. And you know what? I would go out and try and find him too. And she's saying, please, heal my daughter. Please, come and heal my daughter. And Jesus is just walking along. Finally, the disciples have had enough, and they go, Jesus, could you just heal his, her daughter already? She's starting to annoy us. That's what the Bible says. And Jesus turns to her and he says, I'm sorry. I imagine he was apologetic in his tone. It comes across a little harsh. He says, I've not been called to you. I'm called to the children of Israel, and that is my mission. She looks at him and she says, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the table. And Jesus was impressed. And he said, your faith is great. Your daughter is healed. But he wasn't there to save the Gentiles. He had come to save his people, the Jewish people. But he broke his own rules. I love that about Jesus. See, I think we would do well to break a few of our own rules. The rules that say who we'll eat with and who we'll sit next to. 
The rules that say who will welcome, will welcome into our home. The rules that say who will welcome into this church family. You know, we're foster parents. Many of you know that. We've had 30 foster children. And my kids, we are all on board. My kids are incredible. We know what God is asking us to do. But if one of my kids ever came to me and said, Dad, you know, it's not fair. It's really not fair that we have these foster kids. They take a lot of your time away from us. You know, I would say two things to them. The first thing I would say is this, you're wrong. We do not have foster children in this home. We have children and parents, period. There's no distinction between somebody who was born into our family and somebody who came into our family later. We are all, you are all children. And we are your parents, period. Secondly, what do you know about fair? What do you know about fair? How fair do you think it was when that child was removed from his home because of something that went wrong and was placed into a house of strangers? How fair was that? And you see, suddenly the proper sense of justice is going to wash over them and they won't say anything else, I promise you. <laughs> because the proper perspective is, that is more unfair that, those, that something went wrong there and now we have to step in and help. That is more unfair. That is more unjust. And my kids have seen the evil of the world. They have come face to face with a lot of evil because of what we do. So their sense of justice has been realigned a little bit. There's, way, oh, there's a long ways to go because there's a long ways to go for me. But we have to break our own rules and say there are no foster children in this church. There are only adopted sons and daughters of the Most High King, period. We're a family. And by the way, this isn't the only family gathering on a Sunday. We have cousins who are meeting down the road and over there and in Winnipeg and across the world. We have family members all over the world. It's an incredible family. Some of our family members may be visiting here today and they're welcome because we are a great big family. I was going to say happy, but we're not always happy. <laughs> but we should be happy. And we should be happy when people drop in who you would never think would darken the doorstep of a church. The Rahabs and the JLs. We should allow ourselves to be led by the Deborahs. Those whom the culture says we should not be led by. And you know, we are, I think we get this right a lot of the time. All I'm saying is this. I need to grow in it. I need to grow in it. I need to be more comfortable sitting with people who make me uncomfortable. I do. And I think, well, it's interesting, actually. I was wondering if how relevant this message would be. But then Chuck Swindoll this morning on the way to church confirmed it for me. You know why? Because I was listening to Chuck Swindoll's like three-minute sermon this way on CHVN this morning on the way to church. And you know what he said to his church? He said, the leadership is worried that we are not spontaneously loving one another. And I figured, well, if Swindoll's church needs to hear it, so do we probably. <laughs> you can't program this. It has to be something that rises up within you. But would it not be amazing if each believer in this building today and this weekend would find one lonely soul this year and lead them into the family of Jesus Christ? Just one soul. And there were twice as many of us next year sitting in this living room 
worshiping to the same Father and the same God because of that. Incredible. Two thoughts. One, if you are not yet in the family, today's a good day to join. Sometimes you don't even know how good it can be until you just take a step, a move towards God. Do it. For us of us, for those of us who know Jesus and our Father, let's make sure that we make room for them and we let them in. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that 20, well, 19 years ago when I gave my life to you, and I was such a fake and such a hypocrite, and my mind was so dark and my heart so evil, that you did not turn me away when I genuinely began to seek you. And Father, far be it from me to judge anybody who was as bad as I was, who's coming to you now. I remember what I was. So Jesus, I pray that you would help us to be grounded in this love. And I pray that it would seep out of us and that your kingdom would be growing and established, not just here in Steinbach in the region, but across Canada and in the world. There are so many orphans. I pray that they would find you to be their father. And I ask in your name, amen.